Section 38 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Reynolds. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. Section 38. Selected Excerpts by George Barclay. George Barclay, 1685-1753. Few readers in the United States are unfamiliar with the lines, Westward the course of empire takes its way. It is vaguely remembered that a certain Bishop Barclay was the author of a treatise on tar water, there is, moreover, a general impression that this Bishop Barclay contended for the unreality of all things outside of his own mind, and now and then some recall Byron's lines. When Bishop Barclay said there was no matter, and proved it, t'was no matter what he said. This is the substance of the popular knowledge of one of the profoundest thinkers of the early part of the 18th century, the time of Shaftesbury and Locke, of Addison and Steele, of Butler, Pope, and Swift, one of the most fascinating men of his day, and one of the best of any age. Beside, or rather above, Byron's line, should be placed Pope's tribute. To Barclay, every virtue under heaven. Barclay was born in Ireland, probably at Dysart Castle in the Valley of Nore, near Kilkenny, March 12, 1685. The family, having but lately come into Ireland, Barclay always accounted himself an Englishman. At Kilkenny School, he met the poet Pryor, who became his intimate friend, his business representative, and his most regular correspondent for life. Swift preceded him at this school and at Trinity College, Dublin, whither Berkeley went March 21, 1700, being then fifteen years of age. Here, as at Kilkenny, he took rank much beyond his years and was soon deep in philosophical speculations. In Professor Fraser's edition of The Life and Works of Berkeley appears a commonplace book, kept during the Trinity College terms, and full of the most remarkable memoranda for a youth of his years. In 1709, while still at Trinity, he published an essay toward a new theory of vision, which foreshadowed imperfectly his leading ideas. In the following year, he published a treatise concerning the principles of human knowledge. Two or three years later, he went to London, where he was received with unusual favor, and quickly became intimate in the literary circles of the day. He made friends everywhere, being attractive in all ways, young, handsome, graceful, fascinating in discourse, enthusiastic, and full of thought. Swift was especially impressed by him, and did much to further his fortunes. His philosophical conceptions he at this time popularized in Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonius, a work rated by some critics as at the head of its class. Before going to London, Berkeley had been made a Fellow of Trinity, and had been appointed to various college offices, and had taken orders. He remained away from Dublin for about eight years, on leave frequently extended writing in London, and traveling, teaching, and writing on the continent. On his return from his foreign travels in 1720 or 1721, he found society completely demoralized by the collapse of the South Sea bubble. 
He was much depressed by the conditions around him, and sought to awaken the moral sense of the people by an essay toward preventing the ruin of Great Britain. Returning to Dublin and resuming his college duties, he was shortly made Dean of Dromore, and then Dean of Derry. Hardly had he received these dignified appointments, when he began planning to rid himself of them, being completely absorbed in a scheme for a university in the Bermudas, which should educate scholars, teachers, and ministers for the new world, to which his hope turned. To this scheme he devoted himself for many years. A singular occurrence, which released him from pecuniary cares, enabled him to give his time as well as his heart to the work. Miss Van Homerick, the Vanessa of Swift, upon her mother's death, left London and went to live in Ireland, to be near her beloved Dean, and there she was informed of Swift's marriage to Stella. The news killed her, but she revoked the will by which her fortune was bequeathed to Swift, and left one half of it, or about four thousand pounds, to Barclay, whom she had met but once. He must have kept an atmosphere, as Badgett says of Francis Horner. Going to London on fire with his great scheme, prepared to resign his deanery and cast his lot with that of the proposed university, Barclay wasted years in the effort to secure a charter and grant from the administration. His enthusiasm and his fascinating manners affected much, and over and over again only the simplest formalities seemed necessary to success. Only the will of Sir Robert Walpole stood in the way, but Walpole's will sufficed. At last, in September 1728, tired of waiting at court, Barclay, who had just married, sailed with three or four friends, including the artist Smybert, for Rhode Island, intending to await the completion of his grant, and then proceed to Bermuda. He bought a farm near Newport, and built a house which he called Whitehall, in which he lived for about three years, leaving a tradition of benignant but retired and scholastic life. Among the friends who were here drawn to him was the Reverend Samuel Johnson of Stratford, afterward the first president of King's, now Columbia, College, with whom he corresponded during the remainder of his life and through whom he was able to aid greatly the cause of education in America. The Newport life was idyllic. Barclay wrote home that the winters were cooler than those of the south of Ireland, but not worse than he had known in Italy. He brought over a good library, and read and wrote. The principal work of this period, written in a romantic cleft in the rocks, was Alciphron, or The Minute Philosopher, in seven dialogues directed especially against atheism. At length, through Lord Percival, Barclay learned that Walpole would not allow the parliamentary grant of £20,000 for the Bermuda College, and returned to England at the close of 1732. His Whitehall estate he conveyed to Yale College for the maintenance of certain scholarships. From England he sent over nearly a thousand volumes for the Yale Library, the best collection of books ever brought at one time to America, being helped in the undertaking by some of the Bermuda subscribers. A little later, he sent a collection of books to Harvard College also, and presented a valuable organ to Trinity Church at Newport. Shortly after his return, Barclay was appointed Bishop of Cloyne, near Cork in Ireland, and here he remained for about eighteen years. Although a recluse, he wrote much, and he kept up his loving relations with old friends who still survived. He had several children to educate, and he cultivated music and painting, he attempted to establish manufactures and to cultivate habits of industry and refinement among the people. The winter of 1739 was bitterly cold. This was followed by general want, famine, and disease. 
Barclay and his family lived simply and gave away what they could save. Large numbers of people died from an epidemic. In America, Barclay's attention had been drawn to the medicinal virtues of tar, and he experimented successfully with tar water as a remedy. Becoming more and more convinced of its value, he exploited his supposed discovery with his usual ardor, writing letters and essays, and at length a chain of philosophical reflections and enquiries concerning the virtues of tar-water and divers other subjects connected together and arising one from another. This was called Cirrus in a second edition, which was soon demanded. Beginning with the use of tar-water as a remedy, the treatise gradually developed into the treatment of the largest themes, and offered the ripest fruits of the bishop's philosophy. Barclay's system was neither consistent nor complete, but much of it remained sound. In brief, he contended that matter has no independent existence, but is an idea in the supreme mind, which is realized in various forms by the human mind. Without mind nothing exists. Cause cannot exist except as it rests in mind and will. All so-called physical causes are merely cases of constant sequences of phenomena. Far from denying the reality of phenomena, Barclay insists on it, but contends that reality depends upon the supremacy of mind. Abstract matter does not and cannot exist. The mind can only perceive qualities of objects, and infers the existence of the objects from them. Or, as a modern writer tersely puts it, the only thing certain is mind. Matter is a doubtful and uncertain inference of the human intellect. The essay upon tar-water attracted great attention. The good bishop wrote much, also for periodicals, mainly upon practical themes, and in the queerest, an intermittent journal, considered many matters of ethical and political importance to the country. Though a bishop of the established church, he lived upon the most friendly terms with his Roman Catholic neighbors, and his labors were highly appreciated by them. But his life was waning. His friends had passed away. He had lost several children. His health was broken. He desired to retire to Oxford, and spend the remainder of his life in scholarly seclusion. He asked to exchange his bishopric for a canonry, but this could not be permitted. He then begged to be allowed to resign his charge, but the king replied that he might live where he pleased, but that he could die a bishop in spite of himself. In August 1752, Bishop Barclay removed himself, his wife, his daughter, and his goods to Oxford, where his son George was a student. And there, on the 14th of the following January, as he was resting on his couch by the fireside at tea-time, his busy brain stopped thinking, and his kind heart ceased to beat. ON THE PROSPECT OF PLANTING ARTS AND LEARNING IN AMERICA The muse, disgusted at an age and clime, barren of every glorious theme, in distant lands now waits a better time, producing subjects worthy fame. In happy climes, where from the genial sun and virgin earth such scenes ensue, the force of art by nature seems outdone, and fancied beauties by the true. In happy climes the seat of innocence, where nature guides and virtue rules, where men shall not impose, for truth and sense, the pedantry of courts and schools. There shall be sung another golden age, the rise of empire and of arts, the good and great inspiring epic rage, the wisest heads and noblest hearts. 
not such as Europe breeds in her decay, such as she bred when fresh and young, when heavenly flame did animate her clay, by future poets shall be sung. Westward the course of empire takes its way, the four first acts already passed, a fifth shall close the drama with the day, time's noblest offspring is the last. Essay on Tarwater from Cirrus The seeds of things seem to lie latent in the air, ready to appear and produce their kind whenever they light on a proper matrix. The extremely small seeds of fern, mosses, mushrooms, and some other plants are concealed and wafted about in the air. Every part whereof seems replete with seed of one kind or another. The whole atmosphere seems alive. There is everywhere acid to corrode, and seed to engender. Iron will rust, and mold will grow in all places. Virgin earth becomes fertile. Crops of new plants ever and anon show themselves, all which demonstrate the air to be a common seminary and receptacle of all vivifying principles. The eye, by long use, comes to see even in the darkest cavern, and there is no subject so obscure but we may discern some glimpse of truth by long poring on it. Truth is the cry of all, but the game of a few. Certainly, where it is the chief passion, it doth not give way to vulgar cares and views, nor is it contented with a little ardor in the early time of life. Active, perhaps, to pursue, but not so fit to weigh and revise. He that would make a real progress in knowledge must dedicate his age as well as his youth, the later growth as well as first fruits, at the altar of truth. As the nerves are instruments of sensation, it follows that spasms in the nerves may produce all symptoms, and therefore a disorder in the nervous system shall imitate all distempers, and occasion, in appearance, an asthma, for instance, a pleurisy, or a fit of the stone. Now, whatever is good for the nerves in general is good against all such symptoms. But tar-water, as it includes in an eminent degree, the virtues of warm gums and resins, is of great use for comforting and strengthening the nerves, curing twitches in the nervous fibers, cramps also, and numbness in the limbs, removing anxieties and promoting sleep in all which cases I have known it very successful. This safe and cheap medicine suits all circumstances and all constitutions, operating easily, curing without disturbing, raising the spirits without depressing them, a circumstance that deserves repeated attention, especially in these climates, where strong liquors so fatally and so frequently produce those very distresses they are designed to remedy. And if I am not misinformed, even among the ladies themselves, who are truly much to be pitied, their condition of life makes them prey to imaginary woes, which never fail to grow up in minds unexercised and unemployed, to get rid of these, it is said, there are who betake themselves to distilled spirits, and it is not improbable they are led gradually to the use of those poisons by a certain complacent pharmacy, too much used in the modern practice, palsy drops, poppy cordial, plague water, and such like, which being in truth nothing but drams disguised, yet coming from the apothecaries are considered only as medicines. The soul of man was supposed by many ancient sages to be thrust into the human body as into a prison for punishment of past offenses. But the worst prison is the body of an indolent epicure, whose blood is inflamed by fermented liquors, 
and high sauces, or rendered putrid, sharp, and corrosive by a stagnation of the animal juices through sloth and indolence, whose membranes are irritated by pungent salts, whose mind is agitated by painful oscillations of the nervous system, and whose nerves are mutually affected by the irregular passions of the mind. This ferment in the animal economy darkens and confounds the intellect. It produceth vain terrors and vain conceits, and stimulates the soul with mad desires, which, not being natural, nothing in nature can satisfy. No wonder, therefore, there are so many fine persons of both sexes, shining themselves, and shown on by fortune, who are inwardly miserable and sick of life. The hardness of stubbed, vulgar constitutions renders them insensible of a thousand things that fret and gall those delicate people, who, as if their skin was peeled off, feel to the quick everything that touches them. The remedy for this exquisite and painful sensibility is commonly sought from fermented, perhaps from distilled liquors, which render many lives wretched that would otherwise have been only ridiculous. The tender nerves and low spirits of such poor creatures would be much relieved by the use of tar-water, which might prolong and cheer their lives. I do therefore recommend to them the use of a cordial, not only safe and innocent, but giving health and spirit as sure as other cordials destroy them. I do verily think there is not any other medicine whatsoever so effectual to restore a crazy constitution and cheer a dreary mind or so likely to subvert that gloomy empire of the spleen, which tyrannizeth over the better sort, as they are called, of these free nations, and maketh them, in spite of their liberty and property, more wretched slaves than even the subjects of absolute power, who breathe clear air in a sunny climate, while men of low degree often enjoy a tranquillity and content that no advantage of birth or fortune can equal. Such indeed was the case while the rich alone could afford to be debauched, but when even beggars become debauchees, the case was altered. The public virtue and spirit of the British legislature never showed itself more conspicuous in any act than in that for suppressing the immoderate use of distilled spirits among the people, whose strength and numbers constitute the true wealth of a nation. Though evasive arts will, it is feared prevail so long as distilled spirits of any kind are allowed, the character of Englishmen in general being that of Brutus, quick quid vult valde vult, whatever he desires, he desires intensely. But why should such a canker be tolerated in the vitals of a state under any pretense, or in any shape whatsoever? Better by far the whole present set of distillers were pensioners of the public, and their trade abolished by law since all the benefit thereof put together would not balance the hundredth part of its mischief. This tar-water will also give charitable relief to the ladies, who often want it more than the parish poor, being many of them never able to make a good meal, and sitting pale and puny, and forbidden like ghosts at their own table, victims of vapours and indigestion. Studious persons also, pent up in narrow holes, breathing bad air and stooping over their books, are much to be pitied, as they are debarred the free use of air and exercise. This I will venture to recommend as the best succedaneum to both, though it were to be wished that modern scholars would, like the ancients, meditate and converse more in walks and gardens and open air, which upon the whole would perhaps be no hindrance to their learning, and a great advantage to their health. 
My own sedentary course of life had long since thrown me into an ill habit, attended with many ailments, particularly a nervous colic, which rendered my life a burden, and the more so because my pains were exasperated by exercise. But since the use of tar-water, I find, though not a perfect recovery from my old and rooted illness, yet such a gradual return of health and ease, that I esteem my having taken this medicine the greatest of all temporal blessings, and am convinced that under providence I owe my life to it. End of section 38. Recording by Stephen Reynolds, Durham, Connecticut.